HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn, new American cuisine in one of Washington, D.C.'s oldest hotels, located in DuPont Circle. For more information, visit tabardinn.com. Muddle, stir, drink. The mojito is one of the most popular and beloved cocktails globally. Rum collector Robert Burr tells me how five simple ingredients came together to make this iconic drink. The mojito started off uh, as a very uh, simple drink for field workers. Obviously, when you're working in a cane field and people have been chewing on cane and just enjoying that, that little bit of sugar that you get from the cane, crushing the cane and making warapo or or fresh sugarcane juice is a, a very old tradition in the tropics. Rum also is a tradition being made from sugarcane. And so it's only natural that rum and sugarcane juice would end up together in a glass. Uh, and then when you add the other ingredients that are handy in the tropics, the uh, lime and the, and the mint, well, now you start to have a wonderful combination that really is truly refreshing. Later on, adding carbonated water really finishes the cocktail in a refined way and begins to gain popularity around the world. As these hot, humid summer months come to a close, the Meet and 3 team is looking for some refreshment. And what could be more reviving than the icy, herbaceous, citrusy mojito? For some, this Cuban libation is synonymous with a tropical vacation. For others, it's an everyday delight. But whenever and wherever you imbibe, you're tasting the result of a rich and sometimes dark history that brought rum, sugar, mint, lime, and soda together. In this episode, we will explore the history of the mojito, one ingredient at a time. And we'll see how ancient medicine, colonialism, the slave trade, and American prohibition blend together to make the drink we know today. This is my first time hosting the show. My name is Matt Patterson. I have engineered pretty much every episode of this series for the past four years, and I am thrilled to join Katie as a co-host this fall. So without further ado, this is Meetin' 3 on HRN. Meet and three. Meet and three. Meet and three. One meat, three sides. Food, news, and storytelling. A square meal for your ears. Meet 
and three. I don't know about you, but when I hear mojito, I think mint. But for millennia before it came to define the flavor of this classic cocktail, mint was put to many uses. First up, Zoe Gruskin shares some highlights from the history of mint. The first thing to know about mint is there's not just one mint. There are actually 25 species and hundreds of varieties of the fragrant herb. There's the familiar spearmint, milder, slightly sweet, and peppermint, which is more intense, almost biting in its mintiness. That's actually a hybrid between spearmint and another one called water mint. More unusual varieties include apple mint and pineapple mint, noted for their subtle fruity flavors, and chocolate mint, which, yes, tastes a little like chocolate. When in doubt, if the signature aroma doesn't give it away, you can recognize a plant in the mint family by its distinctive square stem. Today, mint is found all over the world, but it is to ancient Greece that we owe its name and to a myth that takes us to the underworld. Minthi was a beautiful nymph, a naiad, who presided over the river Cassitis, Known as the River of Wailing, the Cassitis was one of five rivers that encircled and flowed into the underworld. Hades, god of the dead, was taken with Minthi's beauty. They became lovers. But then, Hades abducted the young goddess Persephone and made her his queen. He cast Minthi aside. Minthi was furious. In her rage, she declared that Hades would soon tire of Persephone and return to her. Some say she was successful. Hades could not resist the beauty of his old flame. But Persephone caught them together and, in her anger, transformed the nymph into a lowly plant to be trampled underfoot. Hades could not break Persephone's curse. But he could offer his transfigured lover one grace. He gave the plant she had become a lovely fragrance that would delight all who found her. Appropriately enough, as Hades was the god of the dead, mint was used by ancient Greeks and Romans in funerary rites. You can imagine the nice, fresh smell would be a bonus there. And the herb had many other uses in the ancient world. It served as perfume and added flavor to sauces and wines. And mint was believed to have a wide variety of medicinal properties. Pliny the Elder, a Roman scholar who lived in the first century AD, recommended wearing a wreath of mint on your head to clear your mind and keep your focus. Greek physicians from around the same time thought mint could stop people from vomiting blood and maybe even prevent pregnancy. Not true, as it turns out. More than 1,500 years earlier, in an Egyptian medical text written on papyrus, mint was suggested to aid digestion and to relieve flatulence. So the next time you brew a mug of mint tea to ease your stomach, or mix up a delicious mojito to celebrate the summer, 
know that you are drinking thousands of years of culinary and cultural history. Very few things in this world are as ubiquitous as club soda. Over the years, the sparkling refreshment has traveled across the world to become a commonplace ingredient in households and restaurants. But you may not know that much like mint, soda was prized for its medicinal value for centuries. Vaidehi Kudiyati traces its trajectory from natural springs to spritzes. When I think of soda, my mind instantly goes to the hundreds of varieties of the fizzy drink that exist all around the world. While I can name quite a few of these variations, I realized I didn't really know where the bubbly creation came from. I reached out to Tristan Donovan, author of Fizz, How Soda Shook Up the World, for some answers. Well, club soda is really just water that's been artificially carbonated. So it's just your normal still water that you'll get out of the tap or somewhere that's had the bubbles put into it. While the process of creating carbonated water seems simple enough, Tristan notes that the invention of club soda has centuries of history behind it. People have been trying to figure out how to artificially carbonate water for centuries because people knew there were natural springs where you would get fizzy waters from and they thought it had healing properties or would make you strong and powerful. People thought these waters were special and there must be some meaning in this that you know oh because it's fizzy water and it's different to other waters we've seen it must cure something or give us extra powers so people became quite obsessed um, from ancient times onwards about you know how could you make these waters and have them all the time and it literally took centuries of work for people to figure out you know why was water these waters fizzy and in 1767 English scientist Joseph Priestley had finally figured it out. After observing fermentation in breweries, Priestley replicated the process to mix carbon dioxide with still water. And this was his eureka moment. He had finally invented soda water. After Priestley's discovery, um, he presents it to the Royal Society of London in 1772. And he's thinking he's found a cure for scurvy at the time. Scurvy was, at the time, a major problem for sailors who spent months at sea without fresh fruit or vegetables. While we now know that scurvy is caused by vitamin C deficiency, Priestley did not know this. He was confident that his method of carbonating water was a scientific and medical breakthrough. So he gave his apparatus to these ships and they went out to sea and the big hope was it would cure scurvy and of course it didn't. But um, now that people had a way to carbonate water, um, other people started commercialising it. Sparkling water might feel trendy today, but its first heyday was all the way back in the 18th century when people began commercialising Priestley's invention. So you had people just replicating his device, um, creating carbonated water and putting it in stoneware bottles and selling it on the streets. And this became quite widespread across Europe. This became commonplace you know you would by the 1780s this would be common everywhere you know people would be buying artificially carbonated water from street sellers and in restaurants and bars um so it spread really really quickly um because of the health benefit and with the popularization of this invention 
came the experimentation. In the years following Priestley's discovery, people tried their hand at mixing their beloved spirits with the new fizzy drink. And some of these delicious experiments have stood the test of time. The earliest sign I've seen of um, carbonate, artificially carbonated water being used with alcohol um, dates back to sort of 1795, about then. So this was kind of spritzers um, in Europe where people would mix white wine and carbonated water. So it was at least happening by then. We have experimentation to thank for the diverse selection of club soda-based drinks that are available for our consumption. Even the addition of club soda to the mojito in Cuba was a result of experimentation. Prohibition-era Americans who had tasted the refreshing drink in Cuba had tweaked the recipe to soothe their palates by adding ice and soda. We all know that the classic mojito is not complete without a splash of club soda. And we have centuries of ingenuity and curiosity to thank. We'll be right back with more Meet and 3 after a brief break. This episode is brought to you by Tabard Inn. Tabard Inn, Washington, D.C.'s quintessential hotel, is located on a quiet, tree-lined street just five blocks from the White House. Vibrant yet unassuming, the tabard is comprised of 35 sleeping rooms, each unique in character and design. Feast on an eclectic American cuisine in their acclaimed restaurant, or enjoy a cocktail served on the beautiful patio, which has ample room for social distancing. Travelers from around the world find the tabard the only place to stay when taking their travels to Washington. For more information, visit tabardin.com. Welcome back. Next up, we take a look at the alcoholic portion of the mojito, rum. The earliest versions of rum originated in either ancient China or India, where sugarcane plants are native, and sugarcane-derived spirits have long been a staple beverage. But there's a darker history that lies beneath. Aviva Futornik explores how rum was weaponized as a tool of colonial and political power. Rum as we know it today emerged under the harsh sun of 17th century Caribbean sugarcane plantations. Enslaved people discovered that molasses, a syrupy byproduct of sugar production, could be fermented and distilled into an alcoholic drink. European colonizers quickly caught on to its economic potential, industrializing these plantations and commodifying rum. It was cheap and strong. <laughs> I mean, simple as that. Uh, there was no other substance around where you could get so much alcohol, so much booze per buck. I spoke to Ian Williams, the author of Rum, A Social and Sociable History of the Real Spirit of 1776. His book historicizes the popularity of rum in colonial America. In the 18th century, Americans loved rum. A lot. Colonists consumed an estimated three imperial gallons each. That's 14 liters of rum, for every man, woman, and even child each year. Rum produced in New England was the region's primary export. One common destination for this New England rum was the ports of West Africa. But they sailed ships to West Africa with rum. Traders crossed the Atlantic to sell rum in exchange for enslaved peoples captured inland. Which they then took mostly 
across to the Caribbean and the southern states. Uh, and there they traded it for molasses because the French in particular had lots of molasses um, because the French weren't allowed to distill rum in case it competed with French brandy from the homeland. The molasses was then transported up north to the colonies, where distilleries in Massachusetts and Rhode Island produced over one million gallons of rum per year. Rum powered the colonial molasses trade, resulting in the capture and enslavement of millions of people. In addition to being a tool of control over populations across the ocean, rum was used to coerce and oppress indigenous American communities. Within New England, rum became a currency in the fur trade. And remember, mainstay of the colonial economy was the fur trade. But once they started feeding the whole of Europe with the need for fur hats and fur coats, then they really trapped out further and further and, and almost cleared the land for the settlers coming behind. While indigenous lands were depleted from colonial commodity demands, European traders would bring copious amounts of rum to negotiation sessions as they coerced and stole the land. In Ben Franklin's autobiography, he wrote, If it be the design of Providence to extirpate these people in order to make room for the cultivators of the earth, it seems not improbable that rum may be the appointed means. A note that I have slightly edited this quote to remove harmful language. Another founding father, George Washington, saw the power of rum and employed it as a tool for political persuasion. In 1758, he ran for a seat in the Virginia Provincial Legislature and generously gifted 200 gallons of alcohol to the few hundred eligible voters, all white male landowners who evidently enjoyed rum. He won that election. And every election after. The production and popularity of New England rum eventually declined in favor of whiskey. But as rum is an essential ingredient to beloved cocktails, it was also essential to a rise of economic and political power in the 13 colonies, even as it perpetuated systems of control over enslaved people and indigenous Americans. For our final story, Sarah Mathis mixes it all together to investigate the origins and popularization of the mojito. The mojito is a muddled drink, or if you haven't tended bar, that means you take mint and crush it with a pestle and some lime juice and sugar in the bottom of a highball. Then add white rum, crushed ice, and soda. It's simplistic, but it's refreshing and balanced. In fact, it's my summer drink of choice. But the history of the mojito is anything but simplistic. The origins of the mojito are, pardon my pun, muddled. Perhaps the best story about the origins of the mojito is this. Sometime in the 1500s, Sir Francis Drake, an English naval captain, was on a mission to sack as many Spanish outposts in the Caribbean as possible and bring back the spoils. But things weren't exactly going to plan. His crew was suffering from dysentery and scurvy. So I imagine, in a rather repulsive state, the ship hobbled over to Cuba looking for something to ease their troubles. On the island, they sourced mint, lime, sugarcane juice, and aguardiente de cana, a predecessor to rum fermented from sugarcane juices. And then, so the story goes, Drake mixes all the ingredients together into a tonic to address the medical needs of his men. And thus, the drink we now know as the mojito was born, the Drake. 
if you found that yarn just a little too good to be true, you're not alone. I actually hadn't heard that Sir Francis Drake story before, but um, it was so typical it had me rolling my eyes over here, which no one can see on the radio, fortunately. Enter Greg Benson, the host of Heritage Radio Network's The Speakeasy and Back Bar, our bar history podcast. One rule of thumb that I usually observe is that if there is a famous white dude who is credited with, in addition to being, you know, uh, a knight in her majesty's army or some sort of sailor or some sort of, you know, uh, colonial uh, baron of some colony who also happened to have invented this famous drink, I'm pretty sure it's false. Greg's skepticism is well-founded. It is much more likely that the native people of Cuba and or the enslaved people who were working extensively with sugarcane and were familiar with the local flora had already put these ingredients together when Drake's ship showed up. But history tends to be written by the conquerors. Colonists were eager to discover new things, whether they were already discovered or not. And that is just one of the reasons that tracing cocktail history can be difficult. Our interest in all of these historical cocktails from 150 years ago is fairly new. And that means the records that were created have been lost or have physically degraded. And certain things just taste good together. And so the odds that multiple people around the same time would figure that out independently are very, very high. But we do know a couple things for sure. People continued drinking lime, mint, sugarcane juice, and alcohol fermented from sugar together into the 1800s, and it continued being used for medicinal purposes. In 1833, during a cholera epidemic in Havana, author Ramon de Paula wrote, Every day at 11 o'clock, I consume a little drink made from aguardiente, and I am doing very well. And records indicate that the drink was renamed the Mojito around the same time that rum from the newly minted Bacardi Company came to replace the Aguardiente de Cana in the mid-1800s. But the mojito that we know and love today was really created later. Why? Because of American prohibition. Let me explain. Well, let Greg explain. The dries had their law, the wets had their liquor, you'd think everyone would be happy. Which is to say, you know, the, the dry lobby, the people that wanted prohibition, got their law passed. And the people who still wanted to drink, if you were, you know, of a certain stature and of a certain skin color, you could usually find a way to get alcohol pretty easily. A number of U.S. senators who voted for prohibition continued to drink privately throughout the 20s and the part of the 30s where alcohol was, was banned. Uh, because the, it was a very much like a lot of the restrictive politics today, it was an incredibly xenophobic law. It was a law that was very much, well, you know, we can't have these immigrants coming in and drinking all of this liquor. They get unruly and they start fights and they procreate at alarming levels. So of course we have to ban alcohol for the lesser folks who can't handle it, but it's okay for me to drink. Like I'm perfectly okay because I'm a fine upstanding individual and I can handle my liquor. And it was a very very two-faced political movement. And thanks to the hypocritical lawmaking in the U.S., hard to imagine now I know, Cuba's drinking scene thrived. 
fact check my numbers here, but I'm pretty sure Cuba is only 90 miles away from the southern tip of Florida. Close. It's 108. You can get there super easily, or at least you could before it became a communist country. And it was... It was it was known as America's playground. It was this place that really held this sort of era of, you know, it was an exotic, exotic in quote, air quotes party town that was in the same way that I think Hawaii or uh, Cancun or Tulum sort of occupy in the American psyche now. Cuba's proximity, its exoticness, and its alcohol drew crowds of Americans with income to spare and livers to pickle. From 1914 to 1928, American tourists in Cuba doubled. The sort of people that were around in the day, TMZ would be all over. That's the sort of people that I think were going to Cuba during Prohibition. Authors, movie stars, uh, baseball players, you name it. Graham Greene visited there a lot, Hemingway, obviously. In Havana, you might have found yourself rubbing elbows with famous actors like Ava Gardner, John Wayne, and Clark Gable, and mobsters like Charles Lucky Luciano alike. And it was in this company that the mojito exploded. Soda was added to the mix to suit American tastes. It reminded them of their beloved mint julep, but with rum rather than bourbon. The first mojito recipes were published in cocktail books in Spanish and English in the late 1920s and early 30s. The mojito conceived of global ingredients and made to cure all your ales, had arrived on the international stage. And then suddenly, it was nowhere to be found. The 50s and 60s hit. Bars were making drinks with pre-made mixes, and sodas and juices were coming out of a gun. You couldn't tell a Tom Collins from a whiskey sour from a margarita. Mojitos reverted to being a local Cuban and sometimes Miami drink. Fittingly, it took a Prohibition-era-themed bar to make the mojito an international sensation once more. The Rainbow Room in Rockefeller Center opened in 1987, with a cocktail menu designed by Dale DeGroff to evoke the era of the building's inception. Suspender-clad bartenders mixed up Pisco Sours, Cosmos, and Mojitos. And now Mojitos are one of the most requested drinks worldwide. So the next time you order a mojito at your local bar, many, many miles from Cuba. Take a moment to appreciate the global historical forces that brought that delightful tonic to you. This wraps up season 13 of Meet and 3 We'll be back with new episodes very soon. This is also Dylan Hoyer's last episode producing this show. Dylan started working on the show as an intern and eventually joined the full-time HRN staff as our communications manager and a Meet and 3 co-host. Over the years, she took on many jobs at HRN and mentored dozens of interns. Dylan has become a great friend, and Meet and 3 would not be what it is today without her. So with all that said, cheers. We will talk to you soon. Special thanks this week to Zoe Gruskin, Vaidehi Kudyati, Aviva Futornik, and Sarah Mathis. Meet and 3 is produced by Dylan Hoyer, Kevin Chang Barnum, Katie Mosman Wadler, and me, Matt Patterson. Our audio engineer for this episode is Kevin Chang Barnum. Our theme song was composed by Breakmaster Cylinder. Our program is supported in part by public funds from the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs. 
in partnership with the City Council. Meet and 3 is powered by Simplecast. Meet and 3 is a production of Heritage Radio Network, the world's pioneer food radio station. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org and follow us at heritage underscore radio. And please stay in touch. Whether you have a story idea or would just like to say hey, write us at ideas at meetand3.nyc. That's all spelled out.